Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Dan Romero. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. So Dan, you were five years at Coinbase. You were VP of Ops. You were a GM. You were VP. And, and you have this idea that startup titles uh, are kind of silly. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah. So I think that startups are about zero to one and then one to 10. And in that period, you don't need titles. Like you, you need to actually make sure you have product market fit. And then you need to figure out how to create a sustainable way of generating revenue. And titles can be marginally helpful, especially if you're external facing, if you're trying to work with a large company, if you're in the enterprise side of things, having a VP title makes you seem more senior. But other than the CEO or or the co-founders, in my view, titles are kind of a distraction. And the moment you add titles into your company, you will have people focused on moving up to the next title. It It becomes a game. And I think you're far better off limiting the title inflation and focusing the company on the mission or a set of goals to achieve that zero to one or one to 10. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, AngelList sort of, and Andreessen, right? They invent like title inflation, but for everybody. And so everybody's a partner. Everybody's, and, and so and maybe it helps you recruit some people, but it's also just confusing externally. And so they're, 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 they're trade-offs. So, so you saw Coinbase, you know, over a massive scale over, over your last, you know, over the five years that you were there. Why don't you talk about one or two of the biggest lessons, either specific to Coinbase or, or, or just as you saw that, that scale? Yeah. So I can, I can speak to Coinbase specifically and then maybe about just hyperscaling generally. So when I joined Coinbase, we were about 20 people. When I left, a little over 800. And I think... What made Coinbase successful and I think a generally applicable lesson for other companies is pragmatism. So crypto, pretty ideological space, especially within within tech. And I think the easy path is to kind of continue with that ideological bent and Bitcoin maximalism or, you know, this other cryptocurrency. In, In some ways, they feel like religions. And I think Coinbase's guiding principle always started with what problem are we solving for the customer? And does this further the mission of the company, which is to create a more open financial system for the world? And I think if if you use that frame, you inevitably end up with a very pragmatic approach. So I'll give you two examples. The first is Coinbase centrally stores crypto. And if you talk to a hardcore crypto person, if you don't hold your own private keys and thus store your cryptocurrency yourself, you effectively don't own the coins. Now, I have a deep respect for the aspect of crypto that allows you to do that. I, I think it's a transformative property and I'm a big believer in exit versus voice. And this is an example of exit in financial systems that frankly, in the digital world, we've never had. So super powerful ideological point and, and fundamental component of crypto. But if you ask the average person who owns Bitcoin in 2020, which we have far more people who own Bitcoin today than we did in 2014, they just want to be able to sign up for a website, buy some Bitcoin, and then if they forget their password, have a reset password button. 
And, and you can't do that if, if you don't properly back up your private keys. So that's a great example of Coinbase doing something that's not ideological and in some ways anti some of the core sentiment of, of people in crypto, but doing something that's solving a problem for a massive number of people. And I think you'd be intellectually dishonest to say that Coinbase has not furthered crypto's mainstream, especially at least in the United States, in, in yeah. that it became much easier for people to buy crypto instead of having to send some dollars to Mt. Gox, whatever kind of offshore crypto exchange. I, I think anyone who believes that crypto is going to be mainstream if you're buying it on local Bitcoins is, is just not rooted in reality. And, and I want to jump in there because it's a really interesting point um, that applies a lot to crypto, but also elsewhere where someone comes into a company, they apply, they're super talented, but they're super ideologically motivated. It's their life's work is to bring Bitcoin to the world, bring Ethereum to the world, or in different types of companies, other types of technologies or other types of philosophies. And you sense that it's going to be you know, potentially a problem. How, how did you deal with that at Coinbase? Did you say, hey, we're just probably not going to hire this person if they're just like so set, if, if they won't sort of you know, bend? Or did you think that they could convert over time? Or how, how do you think about sort of hiring zealots? Because it seems you want zealots, but you want them to be zealot about the thing that you're zealot about, right? Yeah, so I think the the passionate person who believes in the underlying component of your mission is a core part of what makes a mission-driven startup successful. If you, if you don't have those people, you just have mercenaries. And in Silicon Valley, the labor market's tight enough that you're just never going to be able to keep talented people long enough, especially if you're not as profitable as Google or Facebook and can pay people at that rate. And so I think you you do need to find those people and to use kind of like a Keith Raboy, the, the arbitrage on talent, you, the person who's really passionate about your mission and the ideological underpinnings of what you're doing, especially in crypto, is an arbitrage opportunity because that person is going to be willing to maybe take a pay cut, at least on the, the direct comp, maybe the equity compensation they believe in long term to come and work on something that they're passionate about. I think Coinbase has always been pretty straightforward. We're, we were the regulated company. We were the company that connected the fiat system to the crypto system. And I don't think you could have interviewed at Coinbase and, and not gotten a sense that, yeah, we have a compliance department. We're not going to allow the Silk Road or any of that kind of activity on our platform. And so there's a bit of self-filtering that would happen there. There, there are definitely people in crypto who would never work at a place like Coinbase. But I think you also just have to constantly be tying what you're working on to the mission, right? So things Coinbase was working on that didn't connect to create a more open financial system for the world and the harder core crypto people at Coinbase didn't feel like was contributing to that, they were going to be the first ones to speak up. And so in some ways, I, I thought it was a great check internally on making sure that we were staying true to our mission. And if, if that wasn't actually our mission, we should change the mission and make sure those people know so they can decide if they still want to be at the company or not. Any other uh, lessons worth mentioning as you, as you saw that your massive scale? So I think the general scaling point, I think there's always going to be problems. And I, I give this advice a lot to people who are looking to leave maybe a Google or Facebook or come for management consulting into to startups. I think the greenfield opportunities within a company are always more important and and then just doing what your job is is required. So if, if you're used to kind of working in a bigger company, you get assigned a project and, and you kind of have very clear OKRs and deliverables on, on trying to achieve said project. But at a startup and especially one that's going through hyper growth, there are just so many things that are on fire, broken, uh, have never been done before. There is no process 
And my advice to people is if you, if you actually really want to go and work at a scaling fast growth startup, the key for success is doing your job description and then figuring out the things that should probably be under your job description that no one else is doing, which one of the reasons I think I get a little frustrated with the whole meme around like, uh, you know, working hard or so many hours in a week. I, I don't care if people want to work 40 hours a week or work 80 hours a week. And I think definitely at some point there's a diminishing return to the amount of hours you work. But I think anyone who thinks working at a fast growing startup is uh, a way to also have good work-life balance is deluding themselves. Like fast growing startups, like they don't wait around for your nine to five. Like they, they're, they're always on things are potentially breaking in the middle of the night. And I think um, people should just go in eyes wide open and decide, is that something for me? If not, you can go work at Google and, and be pretty comfortable there and th- not have to worry about all those issues. But I think fast growing startups require a level of commitment. And you can argue that maybe employees aren't getting as much as the founder, but it's a free market. So you can go choose to work somewhere else. So that's just my general kind of piece of advice and and viewpoint around hyperscaling is there's always just effectively an infinite amount of work to be done. And so I think that it really, really requires a a mentality around, okay, I'm going into this and I'm going to put a lot of effort in. So you spend five years uh, at Coinbase and then you leave. And uh, in between thinking about what what you want to do next, you're sort of on this self-learning journey of, you know, autodidacticism. Why don't you talk about how you've structured that or what your goals have been through that or any learnings for people who are also you know, taking that time to, to do that? Yeah, it's actually been a, a point of contention between my wife and I because I, I have specifically said that I'm trying to not have structured goals with this process. And I think she makes a valid point is that it kind of seems aimless and maybe you should have some high level goals. And so I, I think I, I kind of have goals. I think the primary goal is follow my curiosity. I think generally when you're busy working at a job or startup or school or whatever you're spending your time doing. Uh, sometimes you, you just have a very limited amount of, not sometimes, you, you inevitably have a limited amount of time to spend on following your curiosity. And, and I think of myself as a curious person. And for the first time in my life, I've had a little bit of space where I, I really can wake up and say, today, I want to read about the healthcare system in the United States and what are the primary cost drivers of that and, and go deep and not feel like I have other work to be doing. I think I've always been a big reader. So grew up reading anything I get my hands on. I loved reading the newspapers growing up. So I grew up in a household where we got the Boston Globe and the Wall Street Journal. So kind of grew up learning to have like a varied information diet. I think the other thing that's important to me generally, and I think that the self-learning process over the last year and a half has been useful for is intellectual honesty. So I really can't stand when I feel like people are being intellectually dishonest. Mm. Um, you see a lot of that social media in terms of how people argue, I think bad faith. And I think in terms of a core value of mine is just to be truth seeking. And um, if I have a set of opinions and I don't actually feel like they're rooted in facts or intellectual honesty, but I hopefully don't have those opinions. I'll, I'll change them. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in strong opinions loosely held. And any day where I change my mind in a meaningful way, I, I feel like it's a good day. Like, yeah, totally. I think those are all truisms that you've probably heard from people, but, but I, I do believe that. And I think the more I've had a chance to just kind of follow my intellectual curiosity over the last year, uh, the more I feel like I've 
gotten to a worldview that's more intellectually honest, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but hopefully I don't have any blind ideology. And wh- where is your curiosity taking you if you were sort of to create a mini sort of like map of, of just the things that you've, you know, the rabbit holes that you've kept going, going down on? What, what, what is a common thread um, you, that, that ties them, you think? Yeah, so I think two big buckets. The first, I spent most of last year traveling. And one of the things that I tried to do was read a, a history book related to the place that I was in. So I started off in the Middle East. I read this terrific book, pretty dense and long, called The Arabs. And I thought that was a fantastic overview of just the history of the Arab people across a bunch of different countries, um, kind of starting from the 1200s through the modern era. I read a couple of books on different European civilizations at different periods. Uh, for example, I didn't go to Venice um, in last summer, but I read a book on the Venetians because I was uh, in the Greek islands and that whole area had been affected by them. And, and I felt like I got gypped in terms of my history in school, never really talked about Venice, like you know, maybe one, one or two paragraphs, but an amazing civilization in terms of a small island in a swamp became kind of a global superpower for a very long time and had a remarkably stable government and uh, kind of system by which they were able to kind of achieve global dominance. But I think um, that only happened because I was kind of just following my curiosity related to the places that I was in. And then the second area, which I think has been a theme for the last few years for me, has just been how did the world get modern? And so I think that's kind of two subcategories of what, what are the, the contributing things to happen pre-1500 and then post-1500, kind of what are the, the outputs there? So I, I think I've read 10 or 12 books at this point. Why the West Rules for Now by Ian Morris probably is the best overview of that category. And then I think there are a bunch of individual segments that you can kind of go focus on. But I think that has also just been super interesting to to me, because I think we are potentially going through a new paradigm shift. Uh, I know we're both big fans of Peter Zihan, and I'm happy to talk about that. But I do think with the shifting of this kind of post-World War II American global order to something that's different, I, I would like to have a historical basis for what other shifts have happened and why did those things happen. Um, I think another thing that I've become a bigger believer in, especially living in Silicon Valley and working in technology is systems thinking. And one criticism I'd have of the history upbringing that I had in in public schools and college was, I I just don't think most history is written from a systems thinking perspective. It's a lot of names and dates and, you know, great person version of history or a kind of like cultural view of history versus what are the inputs what are what happened and then what are the ultimate outputs of that and so trying to construct a model of of how the world works not to say that that model will work for the future but as a reference point to say this isn't within the realm of possibility and here are some kind of general macro forces that can make things happen i i think is a useful exercise and, and something that i've been spending time on could you give an example, and maybe it's a historical moment or series of historical moments of, of what system thinking looks like in, in this context that maybe you wouldn't have got from you know, college or public school? Yeah, I think the best book on systems thinking on a specific topic that's a kind of, I think, a well-regarded history book is The Prize. So Daniel Jurgen covers the history of oil between, called the 1850s to 2000. And 
he gives you a lens for the entire 20th century as it relates to oil, which effectively is just an energy uh, proxy, right? So how does the world work when energy supplies move from being kind of very wood-based to fossil fuel-based? And when all of a sudden the fossil fuels tend to be in a certain set of regions, how, how does that affect global politics and geopolitics? So I think that's a great example of, of a book that if you read just general history books that they might mention oil as a resource rather than oil as the lens. And I think more books like that, the master switch is another good example of a book where it talks about the systems thinking as it relates to new communications technologies, usually start out as decentralized and fringe. And over time they get increasingly centralized and controlled by large corporations, which I think the book was written, I want to say in the early two thousands, and now we're getting to the point where the internet, which at the end of that book is talked about as being kind of this last frontier that is staying decentralized is in many ways, a lot more centralized than it was 10 years ago. So it's a good example of where that systems thinking from that book is playing out. I want to get to, to because Ahan, but before we do, uh, you mentioned you could split up between, sort of between before 1500s and after 15, like talk about why that split is important and maybe the TLDR for, for why the things were before they uh, before the 1500s. And then we'll get to Zahan, who came much later, obviously. Yeah, so big caveat, I'm an amateur armchair yeah. historian, not, not a serious scholar here. But I think the general view pre-1500 is Europe was fringe, and post-1500, it increasingly became the center of things, and then eventually that center of gravity moved to the U.S. But... The pre-1500 version of Europe is you have the collapse of the Roman Empire, you have the Dark Ages, Middle Ages. Europe is generally poorer than the Middle East or China. But I think a couple of different things happen. You have the split of the church in kind of, you know, roughly around 1500. But you you have printing press, split of the church. Now you have competing ideologies rather than just kind of like one mass ideology you have the Black Plague, which actually kind of eliminates serfdom from most of Western Europe. So you all of a sudden have a per capita rise in incomes, which gives more power to cities and, and people who aren't working fields, especially in places like England. And then you just also have the general success of the Ottomans ends up becoming their unwinding, in my view, because they, they basically shut down trade with the Silk Road or, or they tax it. So you give the kind of disruptive up-and-comers in Portugal and Spain who are at the far end of Western Europe the incentive to go all the way around Africa and figure out a way to get to India. And then you get the whole age of discovery and I guess uh, age of colonization is probably the the proper way to say it at this point. But so that's like kind of the pre-1500. And then post-1500, I think the, the naval superiority cycle, which I think, Peter Zihan talks quite a bit about whether that goes from the Spanish, then to the Dutch, then to the English, mixed with the fact that you start to get the Industrial Revolution to happen in England first, I think just becomes this compounding advantage, which takes the rest of the world quite a while to catch up on. And I think the Ian Morris book that I mentioned before really talks about post-1950. It's an economic miracle to see how much of East Asia catches up to the standard of living of the West in a 50 year period, which is just an unheard of jump in terms of economic prosperity. The fact that Japan is a top three global economy post-World War II in 2020 is 
is an astounding feat of, of kind of human achievement and, and development. Yeah. To piggyback off of that for a second. So like Steve Bannon's philosophy, sort of globalism versus nationalism, and just and not just Bannon, but just that's a whole movement around sort of pitting the two against each other and saying, hey, you know, globalism has led, led to the deindustrialization of the U.S. and all, all, you know, jobs and wages and all this stuff. Is that like partly right? Is it uh, kind of half right? It, like what is the uh, uh, like legacy of globalization post-World War II for, for the U.S.? Yeah, so I'd say it's 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 nuanced and maybe half right. I, I don't know the right way to phrase that, but so I think Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now is like kind of the the convincing argument that this has benefited humanity more than any other period in history. And I think you can largely attribute the US's role in creating this global order of free trade to that rise, especially in China, right? Like the rise of China is a result of the US including them in a global trade system. The downside of that is I think the traditional heartland of America has has seen the disproportionate impact of those jobs moving overseas. And I think you could, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It's like shareholder value change in the 70s. And are, I think the, for better or for worse, I think there are a lot of environmental regulations and, and, and things that well-intentioned, but like anything that there are second order consequences that take decades to play out. And so I think um, I'm a big believer in, in Tyler Cowen's kind of state capacity uh, framework and whether or not the U.S. has good state capacity is neither here nor there. But I, but I do believe that our institutions don't feel like they update as fast as some of this technology and, and globalization uh, need to have happen. And I think you have smaller countries that are homogenous or more uh, authoritarian that have the ability to kind of centrally plan and move and update. So I do think that that is the result of a kind of set of incentives that have been in place and stacked on top of each other. And, and over the decades, you let the free market effectively move to lower cost um, locations. But I also believe that that's something that you can solve without getting protectionist, right? So I think you can create incentives for American manufacturing, whether that's a tax incentive or earned income tax credit, or I mean, look at Tesla, right? Tesla doesn't manufacture their cars in Mexico. And as of today, they're the most valuable car maker in the world. So I definitely think you can have that happen in the U.S. I do think it requires a marrying of good policy with free market capitalism. And I I don't think it's easy. And I think that there is more competition now that you have this globalized system. But I I don't think tariffs and mercantilism or, or, you know, protectionism is the answer. I think generally people should have to compete on their merits. And I think like a, a free trade globally allows that to happen. But then again, I would also say you, you need to actually have the policies in place to allow people to actually compete in the US. The state capacity is interesting because so, uh, some people saw that as libertarians surrendering, you know, realizing that they're never going to achieve their desired utopia and best to settle for the next best thing. Other people saw it as them like maturing or, or growing up in a sense of like, hey, this is how the world works. There are governments like libertarians have been losing forever. It's time to try new new tactics. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, I've never considered myself a libertarian. I am sympathetic to a lot of what they stand for, strong individual freedom, core beliefs, and effectively the constitution. But you don't get the Apollo program with libertarianism. I think the Apollo program is an unequivocally good thing. I think other big 
government projects. I don't know if the Manhattan Project is an unequivocally good thing, but th- these incredible feats of human yeah. ingenuity and achievement uh, happen with massive resources coming from the government. So I think having an ideological bent where the government is always bad and we need to do everything we can to prevent government is is not a pragmatic standpoint uh, for me. And I tend to be a pretty pragmatic person. But yeah, I, I think the state capacity, the, the most encouraging thing to me about state capacity is the U.S. still has 50 states. And increasingly, I, I think you're seeing the states fill in for maybe some of the dysfunction that comes from the federal government in terms of the, the true polarization and uh, partisanship that you have there. And so California putting fuel standards in place, I'm hugely supportive of. If, if you have an issue with that, don't live in California. And even if the car manufacturers now need to meet California's standard and just decide that the rest of the country is going to be there, that's the free market working in action. California is big enough to throw their weight around. And so I, I strongly believe that that is something that they have their prerogative to do. And I think Texas should be able to set their own policies as well, right? And so I, I think the, the marketplace of ideas between states feels like a, an underrated component of the American system. And there are plenty of people who think that that's good, but in terms of state capacity. And so what I'd like to see is just more, more state capacity that happens at the state level. Obviously, there are certain things like military. You don't want 50 different militaries. Uh, I think civil rights should happen at a federal level because I think otherwise you're going to have states that have a not good record for civil rights. And and so I think that's why we have a constitution. That's why we have a federal government. But my general view is most policies should happen at the local level and then at the state level, because then you can have more experimentation. Yeah. So let, let's get to, to, to Peter Zahan on a bit. He, he talks about, he makes predictions for the future. He also has a story about why things have turned out the way they have. You know, Jared Diamond is another sort of writer who has his own take on, on why things have turned out the way they have. Maybe just starting with, with there. So Peter Zahan focuses on you know, geography, uh, demographics, and energy you know, in his book, Accidental Superpower, in terms of explaining how things got to where they did. Do you basically agree with his take or do you have any differences of, of his historical take for how, how things turned out the way they did before getting to his predictions? Yeah, so I think the thing that I agree most with Zihan's approach on is that he takes big macro categories that drive how the world works. He breaks them down and then uses that for the analysis that he's going to do on a country by country basis. So I think really strong on demographics. I think he's really strong on energy. I think geography, he's rooted in facts on the geography side. I'm not as much of a geographical determinist as Zahan. I think a good example is he loves to talk about the U.S. and all the navigable rivers and then loves to talk about how Mexico is the complete opposite in terms of having terrible geography. And I think Mexico is a, is a you know top 20 economy and and does really well. So I think, and, and he would not say that, but I, I think that there is a component where I think humans are pretty resilient and even despite bad geography, they can, they can succeed. So I, I hesitate to be like a true geographical determinist, but if you are a country that doesn't have a lot of oil and the world's still powered on oil for the most part, and you live 5,000 miles away from most supplies of oil, that's a reality that you just can't wave a magic wand and, and solve through policy. So I, I think that that is a, the core part of his 
framework that I most agree with. And, and especially when his original book came out, it was in 2014. I didn't read it until a little bit later. But he, he talks about this order set up after Bretton Woods by the U.S. And at the time, I would have told you that the TPP, which, the, you know, the, the NAFTA equivalent for the Pacific was an unequivocally good thing because it's free trade. And that was kind of my belief set. And it was definitely going to go through. And to, to write in 2014, which means he was writing in 2012 and 2013, that actually the way it's probably going to work is the Americans are going to veer more towards populism. And you're going to see those kind of deals, TPP, NAFTA, even something like NATO, which I just always assumed was going to continue to exist. Like, why wouldn't it? I think Zihan questioning those institutions through his framework was a very eye-opening moment reading his book. I, I just, and, and going back to this idea of intellectual honesty, I, I realized that I'd just been kind of fed that yeah. these institutions, NAFTA, TPP, NATO, for the most part are great and will uh, always exist. <laughs> and I think seeing someone come at it with a set of tools, you know, the demographics, the geography, and approach it pre-2016 and, and get it right, I, I think is really impressive. So someone I want to pay attention to, I've read his other two books and kind of have been paying attention to what he writes since. Yeah, I think the one area on Zihan that I disagree with is I, I think he, on technology, is very focused on the military, which... I think there are good and bad components to that. Um, the U.S. obviously has a quite dominant military, spends more than I think the next six or seven countries combined. But I think there are definitely weak points in the modern era where there's, there's a good book that I recently read called The Kill Chain by Christian Bros, who was a former McCain staffer. And he, I think, works at Anduril now, but talks about how the U.S.'s military strategy through the Cold War and even to kind of into the Gulf War were these big platforms. So kind of fighting a traditional war with tanks and planes and battleships. And his point is that, you know, the Chinese, for example, have really been investing in technologies that can specifically deny access to the U.S. based on these kind of like big, slow platforms. So kind of making an argument that the U.S. should be moving more towards a nimble, tech-driven military that I think that generally when Zihan talks about military competency, he maybe kind of stays at a high level or it feels a little bit more previous era. And I, I think he's more knowledgeable about that area than I am, but that, that would be kind of like one example. And I think the second one is COVID is a great example of something he really doesn't talk about in his book. And I think so far the U.S. is underperformed relative to the rest of the world, at least from a kind of like coordinated response. I think the death rates are empirically better than places in Europe. But if you kind of look at a country like South Korea or even Japan, right, which has kind of taken this hands-off approach, but cultural norms keep people wearing masks. I think um, I think some of that is a good example where Zihan's like very deterministic point of view is, doesn't seem to be working. How, how do you think he sort of treats, you know, culture on, on the one hand or, or even just like quality of institutions or governance set up on, on, on the other? He kind of, doesn't focus on that as much. I mean, he, he, he'd say that the geography creates the institutions. And I think in my reading, I found the more compelling of the arguments around institutions uh, as it relates to kind of institutions on the political side and then on the economic side, uh, why nations fail is a, is a better framework. So I, I like to think of myself as I, I take things from Zion that I like and then I take things from 
that book and, and put them together to kind of give a mental model for how the world works. And, and I think that the high level on that book is you have economic institutions and political institutions. They can either be inclusive or extractive. And you either get these vicious cycles of extractive, 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 and the company country fails or stays poor. And likewise, if you have inclusive economic institutions, inclusive political institutions, it creates something like the U.S., where you increasingly feel like you as an individual can get ahead in society. Now, that's not universal, and obviously there are a bunch of different sets of circumstances, but it's the, the high-level uh, pitch of that book, which I, which I tend to think is a good mental model. Yeah. So how would you, your sort of difference in, in view from Zion encourage you to have different predictions? The four countries he, he's excited about are Japan, Turkey, uh, Argentina, France. He's bearish on you know, the countries that have thrived in the world. So China, Germany, uh, Russia, uh, and, and you know, some others in the Middle East. Um, would you have some different interpretations based on your sort of different you know, underlying worldview than Zion of, of some of these countries or, or one of these countries? I don't think any specific differences on a per country basis. I think he's far more informed on the the country side of things than I am. I would say COVID again is a good example of that's a factor that's not in his book that it's going to change things. And so you have to kind of deal with the outcomes of that. And so to maybe Taleb, that's a black swan event. So you, you have to be able to predict those things that are not as deterministic. And so I, I think blind determinism to a set of things like demographics, energy, geography is not necessarily the best way to model reality. I think it's a pretty good way to model reality, but I definitely think you need to have nuance in there and be able to kind of consider other uh, factors. Yeah. And if Zayan was around in sort of like, I don't know, the 1930s or something, or, or whenever appropriate time before sort of Russia went you know, hard into, into communism, could he have predicted it or because you, you said he thinks geography determines institutions like is that something he could have foreseen the way that you know russia would have evolved not sure i think russia's story i have yet to come up with a good systems thinking way to model why russia went communist uh it i think the easy answer is that you have a great person in history type situation with lenin and a set of events that happened and but i don't think um I mean, there are some economic conditions, but I, I don't think that the average person in Russia was pining for communism, at least the, the version that Lenin imp- implemented, um, and certainly not what Stalin ended up doing. But I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's hard to predict that. I do think under the Zihan framework, y- you do see the U.S. continuing to grow, especially post-discovery of oil and, and the emergence of automobiles and planes and uh, oil-powered ships, I think becomes a uh, clear that the U.S. is going to have an advantage, at least over the European countries where most of them don't have oil co-located with their country. Right. I want to transition because you, you've been reading a lot about communism uh, recently. You've, you've done a deep dive there. Why have you done that deep dive? What has fascinated you so much about it? And what have you learned or what has been surprising during that, um, during that study? Yeah. So I think one of the things post-2016 that I've noticed and and frankly been surprised about is this emergence that socialism is the kind of answer to a lot of America's problems. And I realized, going back again to this idea of intellectual honesty, I didn't have a very good grasp on the core tenets of what is communism? Why has it happened? Where has it happened? What have the outcomes been? 
and so I, I've just tried to educate myself on it. And, and so I could have a better perspective. I, I think there's an old joke that uh, real communism hasn't been tried. And if, <laughs> if you try real communism, it'll, it'll finally work. And I actually would agree with the first part of the statement that real communism hasn't been tried. But my takeaway from all the reading is I don't, just don't think you'll ever get real communism as written by Karl Marx. I think you'll get a bunch of people who take advantage of another group of people and kind of aren't going to want to give up power. One of the things that I've found interesting is that you've never had a democratically elected society choose to go to a communist model. It just hasn't happened. Oh. Um, so generally, any country that has had communism as defined, or at least they say they're communist, generally has a small group of people take over and then kind of run a authoritarian style government under a set of kind of communist ideals. But yeah, I think you know, you can also look at it. It's like Germany is probably the best example of a rich country that has adopted, self-adopted moderately socialist policies. Not, I think Germany is still a very free market capitalist oriented economy, but there are 80 million people. And so they kind of, they're 33% less GDP than the United States and, and only 25% the size. So I think it's really hard to kind of come up with a, an example of a country that's, that's already wealthy or on the way to being wealthy and then saying, Hey, let's, you know what, we're going to switch over to communism. And, and to be intellectually honest, I don't think a lot of the mainstream folks in the kind of like American political environment are advocating for communism. But I mean, Bernie Sanders has definitely not had negative things to say about some of these communist countries. And, and I'm a Cuban American. And so when I see someone trying to rationalize Castro and what he, the, the two brothers have effectively done to that country because they have high literacy and there are a lot of doctors, like it just doesn't feel intellectually honest. Yeah. Like I'm happy to argue on the merits of, of, you know, what, what are the actual improvements that they've generated? But to say that like communism is not bad, look at Cuba. Yeah. I, I just kind of yeah. lose interest at that point. Bernie is just asking for some nuance. <laughs> Nuance. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm always down to have a nuanced conversation, but I, but I want there to be some rooted in intellectual honesty. But the, the other interesting thing is, I think um, the U.S. has had like a socialist movement since the 1870s, right? So you have Marx writes it in about 1848. And by the 1870s, there was a socialist party and then a communist, a, a true outright communist party starting in 1919. So it, it, it's, it's kind of always existed here. And obviously you have McCarthyism and a bunch of stuff in the Cold War that, you know, varying ups and downs. But so it's it's not a new thing, which, again, it's always nice to read history and, and realize, wait a second, this has happened before. Yeah. And so there are going to be some lessons. Maybe it's not exactly repeating, but it'd be interesting to see what how did people deal with this before and how did they argue for or against it and just kind of understand what's in the history. Yeah. It's interesting. It's the, it's the idea that won't die. And I think a lot of the early Israelis were, were socialists. Um, I, I, a lot of the civil rights leaders, you know, Martin Luther King's sort of crowd were, were, were social. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a, I, I, how do you think about, how do you sort of rationalize that post, you know, World War II, we've sort of done a great job at inoculating ourselves against sort of Nazism, uh, you know, all this media and literature and, you know, the never forget, like, it's a lot harder for anything resembling that to, to happen again, perhaps. Whereas we haven't done such a good job with communism in the sense that Teen Vogue can put a glowing review of, of Marxism without even mentioning, and as if they don't even know. 
would you edit to anything to what I said or how do you explain that? I think the simplest answer I could give there is that fascism unequivocally lost and the defining historical event associated with it is the Holocaust. Whereas communism, it's, it's lost at like the big quote level, but China is the second largest economy in the world and has had a phenomenal amount of economic growth and is, is a communist country. Right. And so um, whether it's actually communist on the technical merits and neither here nor there, but I don't think you've had a, a definitive, it has failed moment. And I just also think that in the U S you're always going to have a, an argument around, should we be more state driven or less state driven? And, and that's like a fundamental argument. And, and you have Europe, which on average, a lot of these European countries are more state driven. So more socialist, right? So now you're on this spectrum and I don't think anyone's arguing. I mean, some people I'm sure are, but the, the average moderate person is not arguing we should be communist, but the argument is, should we be more state-driven in terms of our policies, right? Should, should the healthcare system be run by the government or et cetera? And I think my, my, my interest in it was, I actually just am ignorant on socialism and communism. Let me get more educated. And I think where I've found myself is, okay, that's a good historical reference, but let's actually spend time in the you know, 21st century. Why is healthcare in the U.S. not working? Right. And like, what are the primary drivers of that? What does the left think in terms of how to fix it? What does the right think in terms of what are the areas of overlap? So I I think, I think the history is useful, but at the same time, like I'm also a person that's rooted in the present. And did you do that overview in healthcare? Can you tell us what, what the left wants, what the right wants? Is there overlap? What, why is it so problematic here? I think both sides want to reduce costs because the U.S. spends, I think, 17% of GDP on healthcare, and the next highest of uh, like kind of an industrialized rich country is, I think, I want to say Switzerland, which is 12%. And our outcomes, other than maybe cancer, are not better on average. Now, on the high end, I think you still have plenty of people all around the world when they really get sick, wealthy people, they will come to the U.S. to get the care. Yep. But I think both sides can say that the U.S. system is really inefficient. And so I think that there are market-based solutions on the right that people are really excited about. And I think on the left, people are saying, why don't we just consolidate this under a European or uh, Canadian style model of just kind of having you know Medicare for all. And I think the challenge with healthcare is American policy, once put in place, is very hard to unwind is FDR gave a wartime benefit as a way of getting around wage increases to, to effectively unions to allow them to offer healthcare to their workers, that tax benefit has never gone away. I think I want to say I saw something, it was like an $800 billion a year tax benefit. So like a lot of people think like the mortgage interest tax deduction is, I think that's 200 billion. So you're the, the single largest tax cut for anything is, is healthcare. And so to take that away, I think it's deeply unpopular. And so thus you don't have this kind of like clean cut solution Whereas a lot of these European countries put their healthcare into place after World War II when they were rebuilding their countries physically. When you look at sort of like the middle class or middle lower class in America that sort of the populist movement talks about as being sort of hallowed out is, you know, they talk about jobs going overseas or being lost to technology. We also talk about costs not decreasing in, in the way they should is for the average person. I'm not talking about San Francisco, but in the middle of the country or the South, like are their biggest costs also 
sort of housing, healthcare, and and education, or or what what are the biggest costs that 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 they might have? I don't have a specific data-driven point of view there. I would imagine the general Baumol's cost disease, which Alex Tabarak at Marginal Revolution has done, why are the prices so damn high? I think everyone should read that. I think that generally drives a lot of cost for people. I think the hollowing out of the middle class is a result of you had this huge economic boom post-World War II where someone who had a high school equivalent degree could get a decent job at whether it's a factory or, or you know, wherever and probably a pension. So, so you had a kind of free market system taking care of that. And then as things kind of unwound, especially post mid seventies, you really have never had anything come back to solve for that. And so I think, you know, you now you have things like the gig economy and, but I think that the, the root issue is the world today requires a lot more education on average for a kind of modern job. And I think our education system has pushed people to go to college, which I don't actually think going to four years of $50,000 a year university and getting a communications degree. And I'm an English major, so I feel like I can say that, but I don't think that that that's the right choice for most people to take a massive amount of debt because no one wants that degree anyways, right? It's like the degree is a, is a, signaling mechanism that you were able to commit to something for four years and actually finish it. So I feel like there probably should be more efficient ways to do that, given that most people probably don't need to go to kind of an academy-like setting for four years and and do something that's really not rooted in the rest of your life, right? Like most people aren't writing papers the rest of their life. Yeah. And so that's why I th- I'm, I'm really excited about things like Lambda School, both in their practical impact, but also just in the idea that hey, and this goes back to a point I made earlier in the conversation around institutions, let's rethink some of these institutions for the 21st century. Because an institution that worked post-World War II in the American global free trade order is not necessarily set up for the internet era. Yeah. Let's segue into another time period that you studied quite a bit. Talk talk about Nixon land. Um, You you read that book. What were the biggest takeaways there and how did that sort of update your, your mental models? So Nixon land is something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about recently, given kind of all the current events. And I think the book is a profile of Richard Nixon, but really a profile of the 1960s. And there's time before the 60s, and then obviously towards the end of his presidency. But I I think there's just a lot of similarity between the 60s and today. And, And obviously, I was born in the late 80s. So I did not live through that period. And to another theme I've talked about, my high school history education or kind of standard American history education had certain components of the 60s and others I, I don't think they covered as well. And I think this book is just incredibly detailed in terms of going through each year and everything that happened and laying out primary sources and both sides of the argument. I think the, the author is a relatively liberal person and is not afraid to to point out when Nixon does something, you know, really well, or, you know, is very clever. I think the other thing that I changed my opinion on was, I think Nixon generally has just been considered a bad president, right? Watergate just kind of trumps everything. And I think he is a much more nuanced individual, flawed individual, for sure. But some of the policies like taking us off the gold standard and opening up relations with China, I don't think are just so you know, cut and dry. 
Um, obviously there's environmental regulations, price controls, like things that are just not your standard Republican versus Democrat. And so I felt like I just got a better understanding of how he was thinking about things. And then the last thing is, I just thought it was super interesting is he, he's a person who is defined by not being good at the media in his debate with Kennedy in, in 60. But most people don't realize is that come 68, he had this young guy named Roger Ailes working on his campaign who fundamentally understood the media. And, and obviously look at where Fox News is now. And this, that person knew how to use the media as a tool and was effectively really, really good at using the media. So I, I think, again, it's just a little bit of like getting underneath a macro narrative that you're just taught and being able to come to opinions on a person and a period of history for yourself based on more primary evidence rather than just kind of what narrative you're, you're told. And it's interesting because you're reading that book, you know, 50, 60, you know, uh, you know, more than 60 years after Nixon was president, which is interesting because if you think about, you know, it's hard to tell a president's legacy once they, you know, when you're sort of in that time period, when you, you know, think about Trump, when you think about Obama, even, even Bush in, in some degree, 50 years from now, like what is the criteria by which we determine a president's le- legacy and any president, you know, 50, 60 years after, and without saying, you know, good or bad on any individual person, are, are there any sort of non-obvious moments that you think will be, you know, celebrated, not even celebrated, but just addressed more than they are, be more important to where we are, you know, decades from now than get credit for now, perhaps, or discredit? I'd think about that in two ways. So the, the general history book bias, at least traditionally, is the kind of great person of history, which flows into this idea of great power struggles and U.S. versus China, U.S. versus Russia. And so the set of policies, especially foreign policy and uh, kind of internationally focused, the a given president is doing, I think, kind of maybe is overweight on average. And I think the the second component, which is underrated and definitely has a long-term effect is if you do put in big policies, right? So I think Reagan tax cuts had a major impact over the last 20, 30 years as, as much as the Great Society has had a ton of impact. And I think FDR's programs have had a lot of impact. So I think um, any any major domestic legislation that, that add new big chunks of government, um, I mean, Bush with, with the t- TSA and Homeland Security and warrantless. I mean, these are, these are, I think, long lasting things that even, even Obama continued with drone strikes. And, and so a lot of these policies that, that happen small in a presidency that last, I think it's really hard to know. You know, I think the first drone being used in, in the Middle East after 9-11, I don't think people would appreciate like how big of an impact drones would really have. Maybe if you're really a futurist, but so I, I think that those are really hard in the moment to to see. But I think th- from a, if I was to say 50 years from now, I think generally it will be something technology related. Like, did we stay competitive on the technology side? TBD, if we do, I mean, AGI, I have strong opinions about that. But I think generally, if if that does happen and it doesn't happen in the US, that's a pretty significant moment in history. And I think that the other one is genetics, right? So I think, you have countries in the world that are pushing CRISPR and the second order effects of starting to edit mass scale populations towards whether it's 
figuring out ways to make people really strong or smart or pick, pick your favorite characteristic. But I think those are second order effects that based on a set of policies in the U S today, we, we may or may not stay competitive with people and, and within a generation that, that could have pretty serious effects. And your thoughts on AGI are that you're dubious. I am dubious. There are obviously a lot of smart people who I admire who think it's, it's pretty serious, but I think um, there's an alarmist angle to it that I just have a deep skepticism for. And this is kind of the thing where it's gradually then suddenly. So I'll look wrong the moment it happens. But until then, I think the right kind of approach is we're going to make incremental progress. But I think the human brain, we don't have a huge understanding of to begin with. And so to think that we're just going to make something that is at or surpasses it um, anytime soon, just, it, I, it seems dubious to me. Yeah. To, to segue even uh, further back in time, uh, talk about what you learned reading Dominion or just studying Tom Holland's work uh, in, in general and wh- why you think uh, that's important or interesting to the you know, current moment. Yeah. So I was raised Catholic. I went to church most Sundays growing up. Uh, I went to Catholic school for high school and I've always found the historical aspect of religion interesting, uh, maybe a little less the kind of organized uh, religion on a personal level, but the idea that, I mean, the Catholic church, if, if you're a student of history is, is effectively a political organization and, and kind of major power broker in Europe up until kind of the modern era. And I also just think it's interesting is I think it's like 5 billion people of 8 billion ish on earth. Like they're religious. So like this is obviously something that's important to kind of understand as just a fundamental concept if you want to have a modeling for history and, and societies even today. And so I think the interesting thing that I got out of Dominion is, again, going to this idea of a lens uh, on a topic that you may think you have an understanding of. I, I think the kind of inputs outputs of Christianity approach that Tom Holland, who's a classicist, so he's not a theologian, is able to kind of shed on Christianity. So I think he, he talks about the Persians, the Greeks, and the Jews, their different sets of religious beliefs kind of get all melded into this concept of Christian God, the elevation of a kind of weak or victim in society, right? The lowest of society as, as the effectively the righteous cause. And I think that was kind of eye-opening to me because, and especially towards the end of his book, where he, where he talks about effectively modern secularism of, of like a modern secular progressive person who is looking to drive forward progress on a whole bunch of different elements is effectively rooted in the, the fundamental belief of Christianity. Because if you actually look at the historical record, no other society was kind of pushing that, that brand of uh, kind of elevate the weak or, or you know, spend time on, on the weak. And so I, I thought that that book was um, super fascinating in that sense and, and has given me better appreciation for kind of like how modern secularism of morality and what's right and wrong is kind of being modeled because in some ways it, it does feel pretty Christian, just not worshiping a God in an organized religion. Uh, religious uh, people will say that they also still believed in hierarchy um, and that this sort of current sort of order of trying to just eliminate all disparities in total goes way above w- where they would have gone. Do you know enough about that to comment or? I think with the split between Catholicism and Protestantism, you started on the path towards individual version of Christianity, right? And and to the degree that you get rid of the God component with 
enlightenment and, and just general science, then what you're left with is I get to determine what is right and wrong, but what society thinks is right and wrong is, is rooted in religion because especially in the U S it's, it's so much of society and morality is rooted in a Judeo Christian heritage brought over by the first people who came here, or at least the first Europeans who came here. And so I think the, yeah, the, the idea that uh, hierarchy, I think started to, to go away as soon as you, you had Martin Luther uh, banging the theses into the door in Wittenberg. Yeah. There's some people who say that there are only like four sort of religions or ide- binding ideologies that are tenable uh, globally today, that there are this sort of, you know, populist nationalism, sort of a sort of cultural version of, of Marxism, uh, Catholicism, and Islam, uh, which, you know, leaves out things like classical liberalism or, or futuristic, you know, things that haven't been in- invented yet. Do you agree with, 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 with that take? Do you, do you think anything else is sort of untenable at this moment for a sort of mass scale ability to, to move people? So I don't agree with those are the only beliefs. I, I think that there's something there and that these are maybe ascendant or the ones that are pushing maybe the conversation and really more populism on the nationalist side and populism on the kind of socialism side, I think are kind of the same wave frustration with this order that was set up in the 20th century that's not adjusting to the 21st century. And so I, I think there's something there when Steve Bannon and AOC have a general belief that millennials are getting the short end of the stick. So it, it's kind of interesting to see two sides agreeing about the, the root problem, but then have very different ways of wanting to solve it. I think obviously, I think in that framework you, you cited, Catholicism is kind of this just generally conservative, not changing much approach that you could see in Europe or, um, you know, other places. But I think it's like you have, you have Africa, right? And so it's like, there are plenty of places in Africa that don't have any of those kind of as the the driver. And a lot of it's just like, no, I want a better life for my family. Or it's like, how do you put Japan in there? Japan doesn't fall into any of those categories. Maybe, maybe populist on the national side. I don't know. So I, I, I don't, I don't think it's the only four, but I, but I do think it's an interesting frame to say, what are the primary drivers of history in 2020? Like what, what are driving the kind of events forward? Yeah. So that, that's how I think about it. Yeah. And have you read much uh, Nietzsche or I'm, I'm curious how you think about the, the idea of, of just resentment more broadly. There seems to be this tension between sort of, you know, egalitarianism of, of, of sort of the secular Christianity. And then also this sort of like, you know, the merit, Meritocracy, you know, quote unquote meritocracy of of capitalism or of software eats the world, um, which is sort of you know c- cold in that way. And the, the, the big challenge seems to be to reconcile this sort of you know egalitarian spirit with this sort of meritocratic you know uh, I- infrastructure. So I haven't. So let me just start with that. But I think the the best way to merge those two in my mind is a quote Naval has said before, but I, I don't even know if it's it's his, but whoever said it, I think it's quite smart is I'm a communist with my family. I'm a socialist with, you know, my friends or, or kind of community. And, and as you move up to the levels of government, you get more and more kind of anti-government. Right. And so I think that there's a component there that I have a deep, deep respect for family and the idea that um, the world is a really tough place and you're kind of born in, you know, ignorant and stupid, and and it's on your family 
and and then yourself at a certain point once once you're not a small kid to to kind of make your way in the world and 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 maybe this is part of it is I, I spent time with my grandfather growing up who had everything taken from him and and kind of came to the U.S. and never spent a day complaining, never looked for a handout because he he realized he needed to take care of his family and so there there's a level of conservatism that comes from that experience in my own life of just listening to kind of his stories. But I think the radical accountability for people on an individual basis is a strongly held belief I have. And um, I think you can achieve a lot of things on on kind of making things more equal and, and progress. Like that is also a belief that I have, but it first has to come from is everyone's accountable for themselves. Right. And, and, and especially at a family level. And I, I think, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to this great history podcast called Martyr Made, and he, the, the, the podcast host was talking about sort of the tension between there's tension between sort of the like extended tribe and the state, and sort of the the stronger the state is, the weaker the sort of extended tribe is, but maybe the stronger the nuclear like the state is synonymous with sort of small nuclear families, but maybe not so much with sort of extended villages that try to offer sort of state like services. Um, and there's sort of this interesting sort of tension and potential competition there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my like philosophical view of the state is the state is best when it is preventing violence between people. Like I, I think I, I just have a modeled belief of reality is the world is very tough. Um, humans can get really nasty to each other very fast and an effective state at its core is preventing violence, which generally then means you have laws and then you have things like English common law, which create massive individual incentives for people to, you know, build businesses and wealth and, and societies. But, and so I think, um, I think what's super interesting about the, the, the general George Floyd protests right now is you have one side saying we want to prevent violence. And then uh, the other side of the coin is you have police who, who are literally there to prevent violence and so I think, you know, more reasonable heads would realize and, and, and kind of be working very deliberately on how can we actually achieve both there? Because if, if you get rid of police, you end up with the, the occupied zone in Seattle and people getting killed. And if you have too much police, then obviously there are bad impacts from there and you have other people getting killed. So I think the minimization of violence is actually something that I've learned and, and deeply respect about Peter Thiel. Um, and it, it wasn't necessarily obvious, but in listening to some of his podcasts and, and interviews where he, he, violence minimization is actually a big driver in how he sees the world and, and what outcomes he wants. And it's something that I had never quite considered, but the more I think about it, I actually, I strongly believe with that is how can you create systems and government and, and societies that really do minimize violence in a way that's balanced, right? Because you don't want to veer one way or another because you don't want to live in a police state and you don't want to live in anarchy. So there is a Pareto optimal. I, I don't exactly know where, but yeah. Yeah. Just to take Peter Thiel for a second. Is there anywhere that you have sort of difference of opinions with Peter or, or maybe to ask a different question about him? Why do you think he's so misunderstood or how do you explain sort of the sort of like animosity towards him or just sort of how, how he's viewed or maybe how he will be viewed in the future? How do you think about that? I think he's generally conservative. So you're going to find people who don't like conservative views are going to take issue with him. If, if they're, again, not necessarily being focused on intellectual honesty or good faith, they just, they kind of say, oh, conservative, bad. So that, that's one component of it. I think exacerbated the Gawker situation 
I think didn't win him any friends in the press. And I think the, the Trump thing is, is a real thing. I, I do think um, that the world feels pretty polarized on president Trump. And I think he in, in backing him publicly did not do himself any favors with call it 50% of the population. So I think that those, those two kind of events to not like focus on that. Cause I think there's probably other set of reasons, but I think those two events make Peter Thiel, when someone hears Thiel, they, they think of negativity right away rather than a maybe more nuanced approach to say, Peter Thiel's not right about everything. I don't think anyone's right about anything, but um, there are definitely things to learn from someone who has been so formative in, in some of the most powerful technology companies that exist today. Yeah. One of his most favorite books is uh, The Sovereign Individual, uh, which has also had a big impact on the crypto community uh, more broadly. Do, do you have a take on on some of the ideas uh, in that book, particularly sort of looking outwards? You were talking about the, you know, the state as having a monopoly on violence. That book predicts that the, the state will have increasingly less of a monopoly on violence as, as the individual through technologies like like uh, cryptocurrency, you know, has quote unquote the um, the ability to defend like a nation state can. Obviously, that's an exaggeration. But what's your take on sort of some of those ideas or the culture that's emerged from that? I agree with the macro component of that book, where technology is very empowering for the individual. And again, another important belief. I, I believe fundamentally in the right for people to have encryption. I, I think it's it's a misguided policy to credit create. Uh, secure technologies with backdoors because inevitably they'll get hacked and then bad actors are going to have freedom to do whatever they want with our kind of otherwise technological systems. Right. So I think, um, I think that technology is very powerful for the individual and worth fighting for, especially in a, in a country where we hold civil liberties to be pretty important. Right. And so I think that's important. I don't buy into the, radical transformation of society argument. I think I'm a little bit more Taleb in that I think old things last very long. So Lindy, and I don't know, I, I feel like I know enough, just like very kind of like mainstream, normal American people like where I grew up in, in Massachusetts and my general kind of social network. I, I have people like that who aren't these kind of techno futurist people. And I just don't see them adopting that. And so maybe we get to a 1984 type scenario and I'm completely wrong there, but my, my general sense is things move pretty slowly in terms of human behavior. So I, I think like smartphones, we didn't really have them 10 years ago or 12 years ago, and now everyone has one. That moves fast, but people are still kind of fundamentally the same. Like I don't, I don't think we've had major behavior shifts from the fundamental of are people nice to each other? Are they mean to each other? Do people want to take care of their families? Do they want their kids to be better off than themselves? I don't I think we've had like fundamental... Uh, universal changes to people's belief systems. Okay, so we've been talking about uh, you know broader history, but you, you've also been a student of the the history of technology specifically and in particular. And so you've you know gone deep on, on Netscape. You 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 read a book on uh, Aramco. What have you sort of learned about the history of technology? You think is is not fully appreciated or or would be non obvious to sort of uh, you know a lot of tech uh, tech practitioners. Well, I think one obvious thing, or at least a reasonable number of people within tech is a small group of determined people can change the world pretty fast with technology. It's the beauty of the leverage that you get from it. Um, that's a case in Netscape. Is That's a ragtag group of people 
and they, they weren't even long-term commercially successful, right? Like public company kind of kicked off the dot-com boom, but the enduring legacy of Netscape is we have an open web today, despite as much centralization as people want to talk about is that that wasn't a guaranteed thing. I think there was a, there was a world where Microsoft and AT&T and, and some of these large corporates had closed networks. And that was much similar to the previous communications technologies. The master switch, I think does a good job talking about, you know, radio, telegraph, telephone. And uh, the other huge thing that Netscape provided that I think people underappreciate is encryption. So it baffles me actually more people don't know this, but maybe it's not surprising in, in the early nineties, encryption was considered a munition and you could not ship software with strong encryption. So the idea would be you can ship software, you can send the Netscape browser to someone in Germany, but you need to have uh, encryption that the NSA can break. And that fundamentally wasn't just going to work because strong encryption existed. PGPs existed for a while. And so you're going to have, non-US companies potentially have the best pieces of software just by virtue of having strong encryption. And so the Clinton administration, to their credit, over the course of the two administrations, shifted pretty dramatically to the point where in, I think, like 1998 or 2000, there kind of was a major flip and uh, we got encryption out the door. And I always say this, but if, if it had happened a year and a half later, there's no way strong encryption would have ever been legal for individuals to, to be able to have access to or encryption without backdoors after 9-11. It just, just wouldn't happen. So I think that, that to me is like the enduring legacy of Netscape is, is you have commercial uh, encryption that's freely available, open source, crypto is, effectively can exist because of it. So I think that's important. I think with Aramco... To, to kind of talk about maybe something that's not as obvious. And, and that book's a little less history or, or a little less technology oriented, a little bit more history. But but the whole point is just like the technology does exist in the rest of the geopolitical real world. And I think sometimes in Silicon Valley, especially pre maybe the last couple of years, the, the tech industry kind of roses and rainbows. Everyone's in Palo Alto and San Francisco. And, you know, we just can kind of change the world, disrupt everything but I think the reality is as soon as something becomes strategically important, the geopolitical apparatus globally is going to plug in and, and want to control it and use it as, as a tool. And so I think what we've seen, you know, the, the Saudis obviously are, are incredibly wealthy off of this, this company, but the Americans did the work to find the oil. And then the Saudis strategically removed more and more control to the point where now it's a state-owned asset. But um, and, I, and I read a book recently on, on Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince, and the sophistication of, of how they use surveillance and, and technology in, in Saudi Arabia is, is well documented, right? They, they buy uh, the spyware from uh, NGO. They've used it on potentially Jeff Bezos. And, and I think so it's a good example where technology is very much going to be used in, in 2020 as part of the kind of great game of history and, and geopolitics. And so I think most technology people, at least previously, I think it's catching up now, is, is we're, we're much more plugged into the geopolitical uh, game than people even think, right? They t- tend to think, oh, technology, Andrew, uh, that, that's, that's the military side of things. But is 
TikTok a giant psyop for the entire Chinese government? I don't know. I, like, but but uh, yeah. we were talking about Nets, Nets gave it sort of its connection to, to crypto. Where where is crypto right now in in 2020? Sort of a, a weird time, and that so much is sort of been sort of bullish times, bearish times. Where is crypto right now? What do you think needs to happen? What has met your expectations or not met your expectations? What's sort of your your hot take there? When I joined Coinbase in 2014, we were in a use case phase. So we were focused on signing up merchants. That was my first job at Coinbase. And the idea was these use cases for crypto are just around the corner. This is the web in 1994, kind of pre-Netscape or or right around when Netscape is going to launch. And then we're going to have the Ebays and the Amazons and all of these other companies get started on top of crypto. And I think the playback on what was wrong about that is... Crypto is only really useful if uh, your next best alternative is non-existent or significantly worse. And for most of the use cases that we were pursuing, you know, merchant payments to, to kind of use Bitcoin, that's a, that's a solved problem, right? You have Stripe, you can take credit cards. Like most businesses aren't like, I can't accept payments. Oh my goodness. And then the, the situations where that was happening, a lot of them were either gray market or illegal. And, and so you have things like Silk Road and and gambling websites. And so the the use case thing didn't pan out. And so I think that there was this trough between 2014 and 2017, where people were pretty disillusioned with crypto and, and the promise of this kind of new digital money for the internet. Um, Mark Andreessen wrote a post, Why Bitcoin Matters in 2013. I still think it's, it's an excellent post. But a lot of the stuff that we talk about in that post haven't necessarily played out yet. And I think 2017 was really important. And, and for those who are not as crypto oriented, 2017 saw the price of Bitcoin get up to 20,000, uh, the rise of Ethereum. And I think it renewed interest, at least from the technologist side of things in crypto in that, oh, maybe this isn't just going to be a winner take all network effect with Bitcoin. And there are going to be multiple cryptos or cryptos that solve different problems and the whole ICO thing. And so I think where we are now is we're, Similar to kind of think if you think 2014, it took till 2017 to, to get to kind of a new wave of, of innovation or interest. I think we're, again, on that same scale of the, the investments that started in 2017 and all these new protocols and potential applications, you're starting to see trickle out over the last year, year and a half. And, and I think you'll continue to see them trickle out over the next year. And I think then you're going to start to see people play around with these new primitives and tools. I think DeFi is a good example. So um, all the kind of financial primitives that are being built on Ethereum that has organic interest. The average person in Silicon Valley is still probably not playing around with that stuff, but at least within crypto, it, it, it seems promising because people are actually using it. Um, so anytime you have consumers organically using something, I, I generally am paying attention. But I, but I think my frame for crypto has really shifted towards, A, I think it's just going to take longer to get to the kind of like end use cases than we thought. And then I think, the second thing, which maybe was less intuitive, is I actually think that there's still a huge market for crypto just to go after money, which Silicon Valley actually has never really tackled money as a problem. Like fintech is not money. Fintech is value-added services on top. But like the fundamental aspect of fiat money, there has been no technology company. I mean, I guess the original PayPal, there was some vision of that. But Bitcoin is effectively competing against fiat currency. And I think the low-level primitives that go on top of money is is where we are kind of building out right now. And I think a lot of that's happening in DeFi. So I, I'm bullish in, in that area. 
I still pine for a, a great end user consumer app. But I think part of that is also the app stores on mobile are pretty locked down. So the, there's not nearly as much experimentation as you may see on something like desktop. And I think given that consumers are on mobile, I think it kind of makes it that much harder. Um, in some ways, I think crypto may have been more exciting in 1994, right? Pre-9-11, so you, you have far less financial regulation on making sure that bad people don't get money. Like it just happened post 9-11. There are a bunch of regulations on anti-money laundering. And then I think separately, anyone who was an early adopter or doing anything would have been playing around on a desktop computer and you didn't have things like Stripe or, or a lot of these like easy to use fintech apps. So if it had actually been built into the internet, um, like Mark Andreessen always likes to say, that was one of the, the original errors that they did when they were kind of inventing the, the HTTP protocol spec and you have... Um, what is it? 402 error that's still there. It says payment requested or payment not found. And so I think if it had happened earlier, it may actually have played out much more because it would have just been integrated into the system. But now that we're kind of tacking it on into kind of a mature part of the S curve, I think um, crypto is going to have to kind of find other ways to, to bootstrap, which, which it has, right? It's like, you know, you, you have these speculative bubbles and, and people view it as kind of this monetary asset. So. Yeah. Is, so would you say you're sort of less bullish on um, sort of like the decentralized web as someone like Chris Dixon or from that school of thought might be just because of the... Oh, I'm actually... I, I think the decentralized web is potentially ha- going to have its moment, right? Like I think you're, you're seeing the, politization, uh, the polarization and politicization of social media happening. And then you have Josh Hawley on the Republican side saying, hey, let's, you know, Section 230. Like I, I think you're going to see a bunch of... of kind of grief for the centralized technology companies over the next five years. And I think people are going to start fundamentally thinking, it's like, well, how can we build this in a decentralized way? And if you have it as a decentralized thing, then there's just going to be fewer points to apply pressure. And so whether or not those end up being big Silicon Valley businesses, hard, harder to say, but never bet on determined software engineers who, who basically are willing to build open source protocol level software. Like I I will always want to bet on, on them winning because to the point of the sovereign individual technology is a very, very powerful force. What's going to be the use case that's going to, or just more, what more broadly is going to bring prediction markets mainstream? So I I think I tweeted this the other day, but uh, prediction markets is the regional reason I got into Bitcoin. Jerry Brito, who runs coin center, which is an advocacy group for cryptocurrency, and he used to be attached to Mercatus Center, still maybe. He wrote a paper about derivatives and future contracts and, and prediction markets. And, and Robin Hansen has, has spent a lot of time looking into that. And so that, that that's always been something super interesting to me. It's kind of like an infovore, someone that's always interested in news. Uh, I think polling is generally not a great way of capturing stated versus revealed preference versus to use another Taleb skin in the game where now people are putting money. And I think then you're going to get like what people really believe. So I've always been interested in prediction markets. That paper comes out, I read about it and it talks about how potentially using it with Bitcoin. So got really interested in Bitcoin and in a Bitcoin base. Fast forward, we now have, you know, four or five prediction markets that exist on Ethereum built in a completely decentralized way because it is a regulated service in the US. The CFTC has very strong opinions about uh, new potential derivatives contracts. Binary options are how most of these prediction markets work. That's a regulated instrument. So I think the 
the thing that's stopping the adoption of prediction markets are one, they're just, it's hard to run a great consumer company like a Coinbase in an environment where you can't even go get a license. You're not going to get a license from the CFTC to allow uh, for kind of user-generated binary options. I just don't think it's going to happen. So I think more likely it's going to happen where someone overseas or outside the U.S. builds a protocol that anyone permissionlessly can interact with. Ethereum ostensibly will continue to be legal, so people will be able to use it. But I think the challenge there is you're going to then have just a higher user friction to sign up. So you're just going to vastly reduce the number of people who, if it had been easy to use like a Coinbase or Square Cash or one of these apps where you can just easily buy Bitcoin, then you would have a lot more people at least playing around with it. But the moment you're like download MetaMask and try to send some Ethereum here and like just you're going to lose too many people. And then I think that contributes to the second point where I think a lot of these markets, they just lack liquidity and having learned something about running specific markets for currency pairs at Coinbase, if you don't have liquidity, like you're just going to have all these problems. And so I think first I would try to solve the user experience component of things. And I don't know how you do that, given that it's basically legal to do in the US today. And then I think the, the second component is making sure that the set of markets that the person is first interacting with have sufficient liquidity that you can actually kind of engage. There's a reason most bookmakers illegally in the US when they do sports betting, do it as a kind of bookie bookmaker style where they give you odds because liquidity is hard, right? And so if you don't have enough people on both sides and and pricing is there, then, you know, any given bet is going to just move the market too much. So I, I think those are the kind of two main issues with prediction markets in 2020. Segwaying into predictions more more generally, you're, you're 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 someone who likes to make predictions, sort of analyze your your predictions, and you mentioned to me that your your 2020 predictions seem somewhat off. Now, of course, you know uh, most people who could predict COVID and the effects that, that that's had, and other things that have emerged too. But how do you sort of generally think about uh, predictions? Uh, what have you learned by making predictions, and and how do you think one can make better predictions? So I think my model of predictions has shifted over time. I think expected value is is definitely the the way I try to think through things. So think of everything as kind of there's a distribution of potential outcomes and you just have to have a sense for what do you think is likely to happen? What are the potential upside cases beyond that or the downside cases beyond that? And then kind of try to gut sense of like, okay, what do I think the most likely if I weighed everything together? And I think um, 2016 actually really accelerated that for me where I was blown away to see, so Nate Silver is someone I respect and, and I think has brought a lot of data-driven journalism to the kind of electoral process in the U.S. And empirically, I mean, he's been very good at predicting most races. But I think what was super interesting is watching the coverage of his model for the 2016 election, where when I think it was, what, 90% for Hillary, 10% for Trump, like that's just like a fundamental misunderstanding of how a model like that works where there are 10% chances. So if you run that model a hundred times, 10 of those times Trump is going to win. And so if you just think about that, like, of course there's a chance that he's going to win. But I think the idea that, oh, because it was 90%, that means there's no way Trump would lose is effectively how the, the, the coverage from that it just kind of made me think more about like, oh, how do I actually think about my prediction models generally? Am I, am I a very binary person where if there's effectively 
if it's more than 50%, then I'm basically saying this thing is definitely going to happen. And so I've become less certain in my predictions, but in terms of just trying to model things, try to think through like what's most likely. And so I think on 2020, um, you know, it was a presidential election year. So I'm, I'm kind of going by the James Carville. It's the economy stupid. You have an incumbent president who most likely is going to have a good economy, like he's going to get reelected and the pandemic hit that prediction like freight train. And so I was like, okay, well, I, I felt good that I was kind of ahead of the pandemic. Our, our mutual friend Balaji really convinced me early in January, or I guess late in January, that uh, this would be pretty serious in the U.S. And so I, I kind of was like, okay, I'm telling my friends and family, like, make sure you're stocking up on food, like, take this seriously, it's going to come. And then sure enough, March comes and, and we have lockdowns. And so I, I was like, wow, okay, I, I actually was ahead here. Um, and then I think the pandemic revealed two things that I completely modeled incorrectly is one, the stock market. So I actually relatively been more cash heavy. Um, just thinking that the economy and being at all time highs, there was going to be some correction at some point and I wanted to take advantage of it. And so when things started coming down in, in mid March, I kept thinking, well, Oh, we're only 20% or 25% down. It's just going to keep going. Right? Like if we lock everything down, the economy is going to come to a halt which it did, but the stock market went in the opposite direction. And, and so that was a complete miss on a prediction. And I think uh, there's a blog, LT3000, uh, Lyle Taylor, he, he's done a fantastic job kind of breaking it down. He called his shot in March and then afterwards said, this is why I think. And the, the kind of like TLDR on that is that there aren't many good alternatives for people to go put their money right now, given that you have zero interest rates. And the concept of unknown unknowns, right? So when the coronavirus lockdowns first started, people did it was like, what's going to happen? But as people got more confident in, okay, we think that a virus is going to, or a vaccine is going to take about 18 months on an expected value basis, the market was able to start pricing things back in. And so I missed the opportunity to grab things at the bottom rather than kind of trying to model things from first principles. And I think the second thing is the lockdowns is I wasn't very in favor of the lockdowns up front as they started to happen, I was, okay, this is good. This is going to reduce the number of people who get COVID. But then they became this kind of perpetual state because there was no real plan, it felt like, to actively reduce the transmission uh, vector. So as soon as people opened up the lockdowns again, you're going to get more people with cases. So it became this kind of like, okay, well, if, if we don't actually have a plan, then the lockdown that shuts down the economy doesn't make a ton of sense. And then we've gotten to a point now where it's like politicized where it's like, if you went to X, Y, or Z event, we are deciding that that is the way to get coronavirus versus going to A, B, or C event. And then I think that the second component is, you know, you have this huge focus on the number of cases right now when the deaths have been going down. So rather than kind of an intellectually honest, like truth seeking narrative, we just kind of have turned everything into political where it's like, if, you know, one party wants one thing and the other party wants a different thing. The, the media just covers it based on whatever their political affiliations is. So I, I would have never expected that. Like, I, I thought like, oh, lockdown's happening. That will be good. And so I think the, the, the takeaways on the predictions is I've been spending a lot more time thinking about just really trying when I do predictions now to think through kind of the first order consequences and then second order effects, which I think is really hard but you can kind of map it out. You can say, okay, what are the range of outcomes we think are like, give me an example of something that's really bad that could happen out of this and give me an example that's like really good. And, and based on that, can I 
kind of construct a potential model for reality based on a set of decisions. One of the things that I've seen from you is that you are really fascinated by, uh, by memes. And, and I'm curious for, for, for a non-obvious sort of interpretation of memes, what do you think is underappreciated about them or what types of memes do you find particularly interesting? What's your, what's your philosophy on memes? I'm a big fan of memes. I think the challenge with memes on the more negative side is it reminds me of, of some of my favorite comedians. So Dave Chappelle is a good example of someone that not everyone's cup of tea. I think he has a pulse for reality and, and is able to kind of figure out how to poke fun at things that are very sensitive in society in a way that can get a, a large number of people to laugh. And now you have plenty of people who will claim that it isn't funny, but I'm a little skeptical in that. I, I really think like he, he, he's universal in his ability to, to kind of hit at the core of an issue with humor. Based on that though, I, I don't really recite Dave Chappelle jokes in public because part of that is like, it's not my joke and that is not my shtick. So I think memes are like that in that really good memes actually can capture something that potentially is going to be offensive to people or it is going to be, it's just like not politically correct or something like that. And so I think that there can be a appreciation for the fact that they're making that level of commentary without you having to like go share it broadly and say, look at this meme, like that's insulting X group or Y group or this group takes offense to it. And so that's one component of memes that I think is kind of got a negative connotation, but I I think that's how like my mental frame is. But the, the reason I think that they're so great is that they're compression algorithms. So you can communicate a ton of meaning, right? Think, think of emojis, right? So emojis are better than the text emojis. And memes, I think, are much more sophisticated than the average emoji because you bring in a whole bunch of shared context. So it's kind of almost like a pointer to a set of concepts. And I also think that in some ways they are, and maybe this is a, a hot take, is like, I actually think they make people smarter because a good meme, you have to understand the actual message of the meme, but then the underlying construction of the meme. And so in some ways, it's like if you've ever taken like a logic class in, in college, which is like super abstract and you have all these kind of constructions and it's like you're reading Aristotle and, and you got to kind of map X to Y and Y to X. And a meme can kind of do that, but it it isn't necessarily just obvious that I think X is bad. It's like, no, I think X is bad because, and you can kind of construct that argument and, and you can obviously use it for good. But I, I think generally memes are associated with kind of trolling or, or kind of making fun of people. But um, I, I mean, for a set of beliefs that I have, I can, I, I think I'm intellectually honest enough that I can laugh when I see a good meme on the other side. Yeah. Um, because it's someone who is thinking through the situation and it's like, how can I best construct my argument yeah. map to a visual medium? And are memes pretty central in the culture war or political war or sort of overstated or? I think they're overstated. I think I I just have a belief that people are, most people are fundamentally decent and aren't radicalized by, you know, some seeing some image of a, of a Pepe on the internet. Right. Like, I don't don't even think Pepe memes are that good, but like, I think, um, I think people love to come up with these narratives around it's like the memes coming out of 4chan are basically creating, uh, you know, this political group to do terrible things. And it's like, I actually just don't think that's true. I think for example, TikTok you know, you're not even doing the visual memes. You're just kind of doing copying what other people are doing. 
I think that that's like pretty powerful, right? That's culture. Like, and, and, you know, you, you get on TikTok and it's like Jason Derulo is doing something or Will Smith and, or it's like Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. And so I, I think memes are a pretty wide category. It's like kind of saying like art. It's like, okay, like how do you define art is like, it have to be an oil painting or can it be sculpture or can it be like visual art? So um, I, I think they just fundamentally at this point, they are culture. And in, especially on these kind of like social media platforms where for the most part, other than your avatar and maybe like the emojis in your bio, if you use emojis in your bio, like the, the platform feels very sterile. I think the, the memes are uh, like a, a way of self-expression that is really powerful. And, and I think you can also have text-based memes, right? It's like Twitter is the, the king of just kind of like, you know, the, the simple constructions where people follow the same pattern and they use it to do a dunk or whatever they're doing. Totally. So transitioning a, a little bit, I want to name a per in sort of in closing here, I want to name a person and then ask you either something you've learned from them and or, uh, you know, somewhere where you have a difference of opinion. And, and these are you know, people that you agree with on quite a bit. So Balaji. I think Balaji's most important contribution to my mental model is his concept of the idea maze. I think it's brilliant which is ironic is in some ways Chris Dixon gets a lot of credit for that because he, I think, put together a very succinct blog post, but he specifically mentions that Balaji came up with it. So I, I love when I hear people say, oh, Chris Dixon's idea maze. And it's like, no, well, Balaji came up with that concept or at least popularized it. So I think of that as like Balaji's like core contribution to like kind of how my system's thinking for the world, especially in technology. I think having worked with Balaji, I think his willingness to be truth-seeking at personal expense is really impressive. I think a lot of people claim to want to do that, but when push comes to shove, I think we tend to be political or diplomatic or conflict avoidant. And I think Balaji has a relentless pursuit of what he believes to be the truth and is kind of willing to go through high personal expense for that. And I I deeply admire that about him because I think very few people have that willingness. I think where we would differ is I think Balaji is someone who can see the future. And then I think it really comes down to is how much I wait when that future is going to happen or how extreme that future will be. But I generally, like I've found so many times where he says something's going to happen. Does it happen exactly like he says? No, but if you give him kind of the benefit of the doubt on the macro, it ends up being right. So that, that's, I think, where I disagree. How about, how about uh, Fred Erson, the co-founder of Coinbase? I think Fred's commitment to first principles thinking is rare. I think a lot of people claim to be first principles thinkers. Fred is very willing to break something down that everyone kind of is like, hey, Fred, this feels like table stakes. And I've seen him on occasion really break through and and, and come up with something that's quite uh, innovative or, or a different perspective because he's willing to just not take anything as a given. So some people don't like that. I mean, it's, it's the thing about people like Balaji or Fred, it's like some people are just like, they, they don't, they find that grating when someone has like a very particular way of doing something. Whereas I, I think one thing I've learned to having worked with both of them is if you can appreciate someone for their superpower and realize that it's not going to hundred percent make you feel comfortable, like that's actually a good thing because ultimately in both cases, that's actually truth seeking oriented. Um, I think you get to better outcomes. Totally. How, how about Daniel Gross? I think Daniel Gross is a great example of someone who's willing to do something independent from the narrative, right? And Daniel Gross could have gone and worked at any company, could start a company, raise a ton of money, all all these things. And I I think 
he he's doing something with Pioneer that is very kind of like independent from the average Silicon Valley narrative, doing something that's like very uh, oriented towards his belief system. And I think he has a very long-term vision on that and willing to put the time and effort and kind of grow that garden. Whereas I think most people, they're, they're much more short-term oriented. So I, I have a lot of respect for that. And he's a fellow infovore. Like I, I feel like I consume a lot of information and then he always kind of feels like he's, he's like two steps ahead of me in terms of the amount of information he's consuming. So I deeply respect that about him. Uh, speaking of infovores, uh, how about Mark Andreessen? I think Mark, to go back to the kind of the technology mental model, the only thing that matters, I think, is the single best blog post on how startups work. Uh, in, I, like anytime I'm investing in a company from an angel standpoint or, or just giving someone advice about thinking, I always send them that because uh, I, I think fundamentally what makes Silicon Valley great is uh, it's, it's not the, the kind of like, let me, let me restart that. The thing that makes Silicon Valley great is the growth that happens in companies that have hit all three things in that post. So you have team, product, market. And when you nail that, and, and his point is that the market is the only thing that matters. But when you really get all three right, you get something truly special. And I think that's the magic of Silicon Valley is you have so many companies that have nailed all three. And that's why you just have these nonlinear, you know, huge outlier outcomes that tend to happen there compared to other places. Totally. Who, who have I not mentioned or, or who's the hero that comes to mind or, or someone that you've, you've learned a lot from or, or taken a mental model from, uh, from there that comes to mind for you? I think two other kind of just like, if I was to say heroes, I think intellectually, and, and I, we've discussed this before, Thomas Sowell is, is someone who I, I deeply, deeply respect. When I was in eighth grade, my eighth grade history teacher gave me this book for winning a class competition, basic economics by Thomas Sowell. And that felt like the first time someone was kind of giving me a set of narrative violations to use the uh, Jeff Lewis phrase uh, around just kind of like, hey, think through things from an independent perspective on inputs and outputs, empirical data, not from emotion or, or feel. And that's not to say that's the only way to think, but it, but it was it was pretty radical for me at the time. And, and I've been a fan of his for my entire adult life. And um, given everything that's going on right now, I, I think Thomas Sowell is a person that I kind of go look to whenever I'm kind of looking for a person who wants to kind of explain things based in reason and fact. And um, so he's, he's deeply, deeply influential in, in kind of how I view the world. And then I think the other just general hero and, and one of the things that I actually struggle with sometimes, and, and I have to remind myself, especially because I'm, I'm not working right now, is the generic kind of uh, person in the arena. I think the, the original quote from Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, is, is the man in the arena and, and this, but I think you can just kind of modernize it to say person in the arena. And it's so easy to be snarky and it's so easy to kind of tear people down or criticize. But when you are actually trying to build something and do something that is different, I'm not saying necessarily disrupt or, or, you know, totally change the world, but anytime you are actually in the arena, making an effort to build something I think you should give that person more of the benefit of the doubt. It's like not even Ty goes to the runner. It's, it's that person deserves some level of trust. And, and obviously you have things like Theranos or, or bad scenarios. But I think one of my biggest issues with kind of where we are in 2020 is it seems like uh, there's a natural distrust of the person in the arena. 
And that is incredibly frustrating to me, having been on the other side, right? I didn't start a company, but I feel like 20 to 800 people, I, I was along for the ride, at least in terms of building. And so I think um, this bias towards doers and builders, to use the P. Marca essay, I think is a, a thing that I wish existed more in society today. And, and part of that is I also just think zero-sum thinking versus positive-sum thinking. And it's like, let's grow the pie. Let's not fight over the pie. And I think Elon Musk is a great example of this. Elon Musk is, is not a perfect person. I don't think he would tell you he's a perfect person. Do I want to emulate every aspect of Elon Musk? No. But gosh, that dedication to a life-changing mission, despite all the haters and despite the impossible odds, to, to push humanity forward, like how can you not respect at least that that effort, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. And we're having this battle like, as we speak um, on, on Twitter today in, in, in different sort of environment, but it's, it's this sort of fundamental thing between like, you know, the sanctity of the person building versus like this need for accountability. And basically it goes back to our, our idea, like our conversation on sort of like, if you're more favorable towards capitalism, perhaps you think they need less accountability because they're doing so much good for, for, for society. But if you're more skeptical then uh, you know, if you think that instead of help, you know, helping society, Elon is like putting society in danger or something, then you think they, they need a lot more, more accountability. And it's, it's a, a conversation we, we keep having. So in, in, in closing, closing, speaking of, you know, getting into the arena, when are you running for mayor of, of San Francisco or what, or what can we expect from you uh, in the, in the arena, in the, you know, near to, to long-term? I don't think I'm going to be running for mayor anytime soon, but I think the, thing that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is what is a 10, 15 year project that I can be putting my effort into, whether that's a company or getting involved in a political campaign or, or running for office somewhere. I think the thing that I'm really focused on is what is my highest, best use from a professional standpoint and how can that translate into some amount of meaningful impact? And so I'm trying to kind of from first principles, work through what's important to me and where do I think I can make that most impact. That's a great place to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been Dan Romero. Dan, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, please check Dan out on, on Twitter. Are you DWR? I am. And um, also he has a great, uh, great website where you can check out uh, his, his blog posts and uh, some book recommendations. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.